1: In the early 15th century, a French village girl became a heroine for her role during the Lancastrian phase of the Hundred Years' War. But it took 600 years before Joan of Arc was canonised as a Roman Catholic saint. In the meantime, and to the present day, her legend has undergone countless retellings in books, plays, films and TV miniseries.
0: Your Majesty, it is God's will that France is united. You presume to speak for God? God speaks for himself. She is an unrepentant heretic. And she will burn.
2: Why are you punishing me for talking to God?
0: You will bravely
1: face whatever life hands you. You are perilously close to heresy.
0: And when did truth become known as heresy? You ask for eternal damnation! Even if the stake were raised and the fire lit, I would not lose faith in God.
1: But how did Joan of Arc become such a famous name in history? Why did she join the siege of Orléans? And how did she come to be burned at the stake at just 19 years of age? I'm Rob Weinberg. And to discuss the big questions about this enduring heroine of history, I'm talking to medieval historian Imogen Corrigan. This is How and Why History. Imogen, thank you very much for joining me. How did Joan of Arc come to be considered such a great heroine for France?
2: It's such a romantic and actually quite a photogenic story, you might say. The fact is that her story was beginning to enjoy a bit of a revival at the end of the 19th century. So It appealed hugely to what I'll call a Victorian mind, but plainly they are in France. But that period of time, it's just the sort of story that captures the imagination. And then, of course, at the beginning of the 20th century, we have the Great War. And we have a population in France, mainly Catholic, They need a boost. They've just had a major war. It's fought mainly on their territory, and that is just devastating for them. And they had lost a generation, which we hadn't, although people say we had, although that's another story. But that impacts on the French demographic to this day. So Joan of Arc, she's sort of emerging, you might say, as a popular figure. They wanted someone heroic, romantic, patriotic, Catholic and it really didn't hurt that she'd been burned by the English. <laughs> that was, um... But the sadness of it in a way I suppose is that they'd taken so long to appreciate Joan of Arc's talents that with climate and with warfare and just building it's pretty nearly impossible to see the grounds and buildings as Joan saw them. And so almost nothing remains. Now, if you go to France now, you will find thousands of images of her. I mean, you can't move for images of Joan. Statues, stained glass windows. But I would say 99.9% of them made in the 20th century. Even the house she lodged in, in Orléans, isn't the real thing. It's actually a two-third scale model. They'd knocked down the original one to build a road made exact model but two thirds the scale about 600 meters away so even that isn't the real thing when it comes to her life which is a great shame considering how popular she is
1: so let's go back to the beginning what do we know about Joan of arc and her early life
2: she was born around the year 1412 at donremy and that's where she grew up that's northeast france it's Lorraine, near nancy that sort of area They renamed it Don Remy La Proussel, the maid, after the maid of Orléans, they called it that later. She certainly had three brothers and one sister. Perhaps there were more, but we don't know. And the whole thing about being brought up in Don Remy was that it's frontier country at the time. There were a number of times in her young life when there were alarms and excursions as raids were happening. So she's really aware of the background. At home, she said that she was called Jeanette and when she went to the Dauphin, she called herself Jean, and we call her Joan, so I will, but that's perhaps more grown up. We don't know if she was educated. She could write her signature, and that survives, and it's quite well written, so whether she could do more, we don't know. And she said in her trial, this is where we get so much information, she said, I know nothing of my surname. And people think well that's a bit odd isn't it? Well I don't think it is because Don is quite a small place to this day and everybody would have known whose kid was whose and that sort of thing. But the popular view of Joan is that she's a peasant girl and she really wasn't. And if you can go back in history I wouldn't say it to her either because it would make her quite cross. Her house which you can see to this day it's substantial. It's a two-story stone house and this is early 15th century so they are a substantial family they're not peasantry later on she said that it made her angry somebody referred to her as a shepherdess and she said no and she was asked at her trial had she learnt any crafts and she said yes i learnt to sew and to spin and she said in sewing and spinning i fear no woman in rouen rouen was where the trial was and she also said that when she was at home with her father, she did domestic tasks in the house. She did not go out in the field, so she's not working the land, and she's very clear about that. And we know a bit about her father, Jacques Doc, because he's a sergeant of the village, so he's not a peasant. He sort of took rank between the mayor and the proverb, I suppose, and we know that he was in charge of collecting taxes, amongst other things. He owned about 50 acres of land, so definitely not peasants. But actually, one thing I must say about her background, her not quite childhood, because she was 16 at the time, but I think it's a real insight into her character. 1428, she was 16, and her parents had promised her in marriage, and they didn't consult her, and she refused to go through with it. Now, the young man or his family, they accused her of breach of promise and she had to go to Toole, which is 20 miles away, and she had to defend her case in court and she said, I've been betrothed without my consent, therefore I cannot be in breach of promise. And she won. I think that's remarkable for the time and maybe that is what gave her the confidence later because she won, but it's a real insight into her character.
1: We hear a lot about Joan's religious visions. What were they, and how important were they to her supporting Charles VII and recovering France from the English domination, which has gone on during the Hundred Years' War?
2: Well, they were very important because I think they gave her confidence. And she first heard them when she was 13, and she was frightened, she said so. Thereafter, she heard them almost daily, apparently, But the voices told her, in effect, not so much to go, but that she would go. And there is a difference there. Now, that she would go and she would raise the siege of Orléans and that she would get the Dauphin crowned. That's the kind of mission statement, if you like, from the voices. And that's really all. But it's important because the Dauphin remained uncrowned. And the whole thing is about the succession to the throne of France and so on. So the Dauphin had actually inherited the throne seven years earlier when his father died. Charles VI had died. But the man who would be Charles VII, the Dauphin, he can't get anointed king Now, traditionally, the place of French coronations was in Reims Cathedral and had been since baptism of Clovis had happened there at the end of the 5th century. And it's a really important thing that that happens there. Evidently, there's no question of saying, well, we'll just do it wherever else. It has to be there. And Reims is in enemy territory, so that's a bit of a snag. However, until he is anointed king, his whole right to rule is undermined. And so that really does have to happen. So in that sense, it's really important that these voices told her that she would do this, that she would achieve this.
1: Was it unusual that a woman would be sent to the Siege of Orleans as part of a relief army?
2: Not just unusual. Wouldn't have happened, frankly. And I I would say it didn't happen. No one physical sent her, if I can put it like that. I think that Joan was unstoppable. I think that once she was buoyed up by her sincere and absolutely unshakable belief in what the voices told her, I think that the Dauphin let her go, or possibly even couldn't stop her.
1: So God says you are to raise the siege of Orleans.
2: And to crown the Dauphin in Reims
0: Cathedral. Crown the Dau... Do- and to make the English leave France
1: anything else not just a present thank you squire I suppose you think raising a siege is as easy as chasing a cow out of a meadow do you think soldiering is anybody's job
2: I do not think it can be very difficult if God is on your side and you're willing to put your life in his hand but many soldiers are very simple
1: simple did you ever see English soldiers fighting
2: they're only men God made them just like us But he gave them their own country and their own language, and it is not his will that they should come into our country and try to speak our language.
1: Who has been putting such nonsense into your head? Don't you know that soldiers are subject to their feudal lord, and it's nothing to them or you, whether he is the Duke of Burgundy or the King of England or the King of France? What has their language to do with it?
2: I do not understand that a bit. We are all subject to the King of Heaven, and he gave us our countries and our language and meant us to keep to them. If it were not so, it would be murder to kill an Englishman in battle, and you, squire, would be in great danger of hell fire.
0: You must not think about your duty to your feudal lord, but about your duty to God. It's yeah. no use, Robert. She can choke you
1: like that every time. Can she buy some Denis? We shall see.
2: Now, they were very impressed by Joan. Everybody who met her was. And the fact that she got admission to the Dauphin's presence at Chinon, I mean, that is an extraordinary thing for a teenager. She had actually sent him a letter saying that she was on her way, whether or not that intrigued him or what. But there's a lot of stories about this meeting of the Dauphin at Chinon. you know, that he hid amongst his courtiers and she had to say which was the real Dauphin and she did that. And she said that she was guided by the voices and so on. And that came out in her trial later on. But she told him that she wanted to go making war against the English. The Dauphin's people are not completely naive here. They are very worried that they are being mocked. Is she a lunatic, to be honest? And is this some sort of heresy? What's going on here? And that's why they had this inquiry at Poitiers in March 1429. That went on for three weeks. And that inquiry was actually important because she was questioned and examined by ecclesiastical authorities, you know, so later on when they said, oh, but you shouldn't have done this, you shouldn't have done that, and she sort of said, well, I had an authority, if you like, but they didn't deploy her. The report the clerics made was, look, okay, we think she's genuine, why not let her go, if that makes sense, but I think she's the driving force here. And just to sort of say about this siege at Orléans, it had been under siege by the English for months. Everybody's pretty exhausted and worn down. So what she says is interesting, whether it's not it's viable. She arrived there on the twenty ninth of april fourteen twenty nine. The siege then was lifted nine days later. The popular idea is she arrived and du you know, everything is absolutely fine. That's not quite the case. And in fact, the English had slightly lost interest in this. Now She did not, I don't think, raise the siege single-handedly, as is the popular image. I think that she was probably quite an orator, and I think she inspired people to have a go, to stick at it. I think there's a big element of that. But I think that her arrival there, nine days before the siege was lifted, was coincidence, really. And so that enabled her to capitalise on that, if that's the right way of putting it.
0: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage,
1: Were there some sort of prophecies about France being delivered by a maiden?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Loads of prophecies at the time. And prophecies were taken quite seriously then. And they were all variations along the lines of a maiden coming from an oak wood. She would, in effect, ride to France's rescue. And that's problematic in itself because France as a country, it's not as we know it to this day, it had been decentralized series of dukedoms. It's only really just coming together. And that's further problematic because there's a lot of people accredited with making these prophecies. I mean, people as diverse as the venerable Bede. He died in 735 when France really didn't exist. Merlin, that well-known historical character, it's said that he prophesied this would happen. This came up at the trial. She was asked about the prophecies and she just dismissed it. She she more or less said, you know, nothing to do with me. What are you talking about? You know, Can we have a grown up conversation? Plainly, she didn't say that, but she never played on that or tried to make it the case.
1: To what extent did Joan take part in turning the Hundred Years' War round in France's favour? Was she actively fighting or was she more of a figurehead or an advisor?
2: I think actually she was a bit of a sideshow. I don't think she commanded anything. Tactics can be very straightforward. And we do have women involved in warfare throughout the ages, it does happen. There was a woman called Christina of Pisan. She was from the north of Italy, who wrote books on how to withstand a trebuchet attack, for example, how to raise a siege. She died in 1430 in France, actually, aged about 66. So there were women around who were involved and so on, but they weren't actually in battle and I really don't think that Joan fought in battle. I realise that anyone listen to this, half the people will say, that's outrageous, she definitely commanded the army. No, she didn't. She had no military experience. She's 17, for goodness sake. I think she might have been an inspiration, but she couldn't have commanded troops in battle. They wouldn't have trusted her. They wouldn't have had the confidence in her, and she would have made a laughing stock of herself. And the soldiery would just have carried on regardless. And we also know that the Duke of Orléans, who was there at the time, he actively excluded her from any discussions about tactics or anything like that. So I think that she was a figurehead. I don't even know if she was an advisor. She said, I prefer my banner to my sword, but that could be a figure of speech. I think that, as I said earlier, when she arrived, within nine days the siege was lifted and French fortunes change. If you have one victory, then you can get another. It's to do with confidence, it's to do with people being able to make bolder decisions, all sorts of things. And so her arrival seemed to change French fortunes, but that could be hindsight saying that, it could be.
1: Let's move on to her trial. How did that come about and how did she come to be executed at just 19 years of age?
2: Ah, well, poor girl. She was accused of heresy and the simple fact is that if you're found guilty of heresy, you are going to be burned because that was held to be cleansing. So it's really why did she go to trial? Now, she was captured at Compiègne. There was a rearguard action and she was supposed to be the last person leaving the field of battle. And again, I think it's most unlikely that that's exactly how it was, but she was captured. So the form then was that you ransomed your prisoners of war. And that's how a lot of people made money through war. Her family obviously can't pay this ransom and they weren't asked for one, but the Dauphin who has now been crowned, Charles VII, he did nothing to help her. And that's very telling, I think. Had he offered to pay a ransom, I think that she would have been handed over, almost certainly. The problem is that having fulfilled her promise to have the Dauphin crowned, she didn't go away. Had she done so, she might well have survived. In fact, George Bernard Shaw, in his play, St. Joan, he has Charles VII say, if only she would keep quiet and go home. Now, whether or not she said that, I mean, that's fiction. But Charles VII must have thought that because, in effect, he's almost been humiliated in that... It seems that Joan has solved a problem, because she got him crowned, that he couldn't solve for himself. A teenage girl, who has a very rough accent as well, we know that from the trial. And I think that she got a taste for campaigning, and that was her downfall. Because no one is going to pay a ransom, the Burgundians who would captured her, they've got to do something with her, and what are they going to do? She won't do the decent thing and just go home. If they put her in a convent, she's going to run away. That would be an obvious thing. So they sold her on to the English, and that hands the problem to the English. So what are they going to do? And I think that is what led to her being tried. And once she has been accused and put on trial, then the whole show just rolls on, and that the outcome is almost inevitable.
1: So Joan is burned to the stake. How long did it take for her to be canonized as a saint?
2: A long time, 16th of May, 1920. That's a long time, very much so. But that was sort of almost piggybacking on this move to revitalize her story.
1: Is there still disagreement over what caused Joan of Arc's visions and her particular powers or that they even existed?
2: Yes, there is. Nobody is really quite sure what that was about. A lot of disagreement. I mean, people have sort of said, you know, did she have various conditions that perhaps we could recognise today? And nobody's been able to say that she had a specific condition. And so it's thought that she did hear voices. And as I mentioned earlier, they started when she was 13. They were always accompanied by a blinding light and always came from the right side and, and so on. But I think that what's interesting about this is that she's not the only one and it affects how she is received, if I can put it like that, because, for example, in England at Kings Lynn, we had Marjorie Kemp, who was quite an interesting character, and she had a sort of parallel life going on in her head, and that was very real to her and instructive to her. People were afraid of her, people revered her, and so on. And there's Angelo foligno now she was mid-13th century in Assisi, but she was similar and i mentioned this because some people find it absolutely exasperating but a lot of people held these women in very great respect so not everybody wanted to dismiss joan and her voices out of hand a lot of people would be thinking supposing there's something in this do we want to be the ones who denied that this was happening i think what sets Joan apart, is what she did about it in practical terms. That's what really makes the very big difference.
1: You mentioned this revival of interest in her in the late 19th, early 20th century. What do you think it is about Joan of Arc that's led her to remaining such a popular figure in literature and painting and theatre, films?
2: Uh, It is the story. It is so extraordinary that a girl, and and of course they like to make her into this peasant girl, as I was saying earlier, which she wasn't, but she wasn't nobility, that's for sure, and she wasn't necessarily educated. So somebody of that force of character, she was physically courageous, morally courageous, absolutely single-minded. She was very much supported by her mother as well, and her mother and two brothers went with her when she went to Chinon. But nonetheless, that doesn't matter that she absolutely believed in her cause. And it is a very romantic story, but without any actual romance, by the way. You know, there's no love interest, you might say, except possibly a devotion to her cause. And, of course, it's got all the things you want, hasn't it? You know, it's got royalty in it, and she succeeds there. She was let down dreadfully by the Dauphin after he was crowned. There's warfare in it. You know, It's got all of these fabulous elements, and it ends in the most hideous death. And there are accounts of her death that this poor girl, when they burnt her, Yeah, they held a crucifix in front of her and she continually called on the name of Jesus and the saints. And people were traumatised seeing this. In fact, the executioner said, I fear I will burn in hell because I've burnt a holy woman. You know, so that is just extraordinary. And, And at the time, they were afraid that she'd become a cult. I mean, at the time, after she died, they raked the ashes, found her dead body, burned it again, and again, and then they threw the ashes in the River Seine because they were afraid of a cult coming up around her. So that sort of aftermath is fascinating as well. So I think all of these things come together and suddenly there she is as this extraordinary figure said to be there to save France and fulfilling a prophecy that was probably never made, but that's Joan for you.
1: Imogen, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. How and why
0: history. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50